We're going to look at John chapter 4. Open up to John chapter 4. We're going to um, look at a, more of the same text that we looked at last week. Um, we said last week there was more to be said, and so we're going to try to say a little more this morning. In John chapter 4, Jesus is interacting with a Samaritan woman at the well. Verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so last week we looked at this text in light of what we said the, the backdrop would have been. What would they have understood worship to consist of, true worship to consist of, particularly the Jews. And the Samaritans, while they were not Jews, they, they kind of took their, their cues from at least the Jewish, um, the first five books of the law, the, the five books of Moses. And so the form would have been very similar to, to the Jews. So God set up worship in the Old Testament. He set up a, tabernacle and then a temple and the institution of worship was a sacrificial institution very ceremonial there were cleansings that had to take place there were animal sacrifices that had to take place there were very specific things that needed to be done the the structure of the tabernacle or the temple it had to be just so with this material and this long and no longer and 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 it had to be exactly as it was prescribed and so whenever you get into the new testament and the main religious leaders of the day were the pharisees and the scribes and and you find people who were meticulously devoted to the form of worship and Jesus's commentary on them is that their um, their 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 hearts were far from the Lord, even though that their mouths seemed that they were drawing near to God, or the the form of their their worship seemed to be real, but their hearts just weren't in it. There was nothing there except for keeping the rules. There was nothing there except for just replicating outwardly what God had called them to do. But what they were missing was the most important component of worship. And God revealed that back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How do we know that that's the most important component? Well, we know that, and this is all review from last week. We know that because when the lawyer came and asked Jesus, what's the greatest command? What's the first command? What's the highest priority among all the other commandments? Jesus says, this is it right here. Love for God. Later in the New Testament, we would read that love is the fulfillment of the whole law. The end of the commandment is a heart of pure and fervent love. And so what the Pharisees were missing, what the religious um, activity was missing in Jesus' day and really in much of Israel's day was just this. And that was a, 
That was a heart that, that loved the Lord. Now think about that and think about what that would mean in relation to David being such a great king because he was a man after God's own heart. Right? He was a man who had a love for God, an imperfect man, an imperfect king, but he was a man after God's own heart. There was a real love for the Lord that accompanied his outward performances. And so we said, when Jesus comes to this woman, the Samaritan woman, and she asks him, where is the right place? Is it Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? And Jesus says, neither. You're asking the wrong questions. There is coming an hour, and it's now here, where those who will worship the Father will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then the question is, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying to this woman? Well, after He tells her this, she says, well, you know, you may be a prophet, but the Messiah is coming. And when He does come, He's going to set all this stuff straight. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah. In other words, I have come. I have set all this straight. I just did it just now. And the lady runs out and leaves her water pot. and She begins to tell people about this man who had told her everything she had ever done. And then her conclusion to all that is, is this not the Christ? And so Jesus is telling this woman there's coming a time where it's not on this mountain and it's not in this city and it's not in this temple. But those who will come and worship God who is a spirit will worship God in spirit and in truth by coming to God through Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit that will awaken a dead heart and make that heart willing in the day of His power. Coming through the truth. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so what that means on an individual basis is that we come to God through Christ. And when we think about worship, worship is no longer that uh, no longer just consists of form and function, but it consists of a living relationship with the living God. Now, Ephesians would keep this this uh, in, in mind just the way the whole book is structured. We ended off last week in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are living stones being built up a spiritual house. And we said you can't have the spiritual house unless you have a living stone. That's the, that's the substance. That's the material. And so when we say, uh, and maybe we mentioned this in a psalm recently. I can't remember if it was last week or maybe in a psalm. But when we say we are we are coming to church, we're not technically accurate when we use that language. We are coming to worship as the church. And those who are coming together as the church are those who have been made alive through the Spirit of God and whose hearts are now able to enter into worship by giving genuine praise, thanksgiving, coming to God pricked by the Word in contrite spirit and heart. In other words, it's not just we come and we keep a schedule. It's that we come and we enter in. We enter in. And so you have to start with the individual, but as Ephesians chapter 2 begins, you were dead in trespasses and sins, right? but now you've been quickened and you've been made alive through the Spirit, by grace, through faith. And then 
immediately, I mean, before the chapter is even done, Paul gets halfway down the chapter and he talks about individuals coming from death to life and immediately begins to talk about how Jesus Christ in His scheme of redemption begins to put these sinners who were once dead, who are now alive, He begins to put them in a body. And now Jew and Gentile both come to God through one body, and that is the body of Jesus Christ. And so when we think about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth, we think about, first of all, individuals who have been quickened, who have been given new hearts, who have been given life in Christ, who have been given the capacity to love the Lord their God with all their heart. And then we think about those believers being gathered together and coming to God in worship. Now again, worship is an individual thing, but it also happens in a corporate, um, in a corporate manifestation in the body of Christ. You can't have one without the other. And what I mean by that is you can't come together corporately to worship and that be acceptable if your individual worship is not acceptable to God first. Okay, so what I mean by that is there, we said it last week, in this room right now, inevitably, we have people who are born again and people who are not. Those who are born again are not helping those who are not. Okay, that doesn't have any effect on those who are not right now. This is one of the reasons why Baptists have always maintained a regenerate church membership. And that's because the corporate doesn't cleanse anything. The individuals come together and corporately as living stones are built together a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. We're able to offer up those sacrifices, those pleasing sacrifices unto God through Christ. And so... Worship in spirit and in truth is, again, it's really we're talking about living worship, genuine worship, real worship over and against form and function. We saw in Isaiah chapter 1, we saw in several other places that even though God said, this is the way I want you to come to me through the tabernacle and through the temple, I want you to offer the sacrifices this way and this way. And, and then we get to Isaiah 1 and he says, stop bringing me this stuff. I hate it. I hate it when you bring this. Why? Because it was just a routine. It was just form and function. There was no heartfelt anything there. The worship was not, was not there. It was just simply going through the motions. And so last week we, we looked at what we called the heart of worship. The heart of worship. And that is, Worship of the heart. Okay. It's a play on words, but that's, that's scripture. Okay. God is interested in, you remember what, what, um, what Sam, what God told Samuel that, that, um, man looks on the outward appearance, right? But God looks where? On the heart. That's where he's, that's where he's interested. That's where he's looking. And so today I want to go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Continue to think about Worship from a corporate standpoint, because again, that's that's where this is leading. That's where Ephesians takes it. You have both the individual and the coming together as a corporate. 
And I just want to spend our time this morning looking at these uh, three images that Peter gives us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So he says, you also as lively stones are being built up. He's saying this is what the work of Christ in your life, this is what it's like. He's Again, he's given us some images here and all these images carry significant uh, theological weight or background. Um, he's, he's not just throwing things out. He begins by saying this, that you are a living stone, or as a living stone, but you are a living stone. That's the, the lively stones there. We could just, we could call them living stones. This is going to be very similar to the, the things that we talked about last week. What does it mean to be a living stone? Jesus Christ is our chief cornerstone. In the previous verse, it says that, um, he is a living stone, disallowed of men, but chosen by God and precious. And so we also are living stones. We've been made alive in Him. We've been made alive by Him. And it simply means that whenever we come to God, as far as the building that God is making in the spiritual house or the metaphor that God is using as we are, uh, as He's describing what it means for us to be saved. We are stones, once dead but now living. Okay, now you think about a stone has no life in and of itself. You think about those stones that were used to build the temple, that were hewn out and that were shaped and all these things, and they had absolutely no life, no power to do anything. They had to be handled. They had to be shaped just right. And, and, and they were all being um, worked on and shaped off-site so when they got to where they needed to be, they fit perfectly where they were supposed to go. Okay, now this is, a, this is the imagery. This is part of the, the metaphor of what's being said about you. Except your job is not just aesthetics. You're not just housing something. You are something. You're not just a stone that makes up a building, but you're a living stone that makes up the corporate worship of the living God so that the Spirit of Christ lives in you. You were once dead, Ephesians 2, we mentioned that says, but now you've been quickened together with Christ. You've been made to sit with Him in the heavenlies. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you are His workmanship created by Christ Jesus unto good works. You're a living stone. You're part of the temple of God. You're part of the house of God. Now the opposite of this, or maybe I should say what it means for you to be dead, 
and your trespasses and sins. If we think about this in relation to what we said last week, Genesis 6-5 is a good description. We go here often when we think about what it means to be totally depraved. But when it says that God looked upon men and saw that their imaginations, the imaginations of their heart was only evil continually. Now, how do you get a heart like that to love the Lord? You can't. It doesn't work. If, if, if you start out with a heart that is fixed on exclusively wickedness and evil, you will never get around to loving that which is righteous and holy. It just doesn't happen. Now, you may go through some forms that look like that, You may be able to learn some tricks that make it look like from an outward perspective that you like that or that you love that, which is righteous and holy and pleasing to the Lord. But if the center of who you are is only fixed on that which is wicked and abominable to the Lord, then Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 and 5 will be an impossibility for you, which means worship in spirit and in truth is an impossibility for you in and of yourself. And so what has to happen? For that dead stone to become a living stone, as far as the metaphor goes, well, we've already looked at that in John chapter 3. He tells Nicodemus, right, this man who had all the forms down just right. I mean, he's the poster of this. He had all, he, he knew the law inside and out. No doubt he was meticulous in the form of what he did. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see and you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, everything that you're offering up to God right now is dead. It's unacceptable. It's not genuine. It's not living. You must be born again. You must be born again. Or maybe we can think about the first Peter metaphor in first Corinthians three. You can turn there. First Corinthians chapter three. This is a, this is a metaphor that's used. It's a reality, but it's, it's used several times. And by the way, when we think about what it means to be a living stone, as far as a Christian goes, This is something that you are. It's not something that you become. It's something that Christ makes you. This is, this is a, this is a state of being. This is something that you, that you are. First Corinthians three will bear that out. First Corinthians three, I'm just going to take the verse 16 when he says, know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now, we've gone here a few times as we've talked about regeneration, which we've talked about a decent amount in John 3 and some in John 4. But here's the reality. Paul says, and he's, he's, making, he's going to make an application here, but just for theological purposes, Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, the word dwell there is a word that means 
the Spirit of God has come to take permanent residence within you. That means the Spirit has come to live in you forever. No exit plan. he's, he's, He's there, and you've come from death to life, and between our uh, regeneration and glorification, the Spirit is working to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. And that whole process of sanctification, brothers and sisters, that's worship. That's worship. You want to know how you grow more like Christ? Worship. That's how. It's a life that is set on glorifying God by walking in the Spirit and being more and more conformed to the glory of Jesus Christ, um, to the image of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God. And so you are right now the temple of the living God because the Spirit of God dwells, has set up permanent residence in you. He would say the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. You're bought with a price. The Spirit of God lives in you and He's purchased you for the purpose that you might, or Christ has purchased you for the purpose that you might glorify God with your entire being. So you're coming as a a living stone, one who's been brought from death to life, one who has the Spirit of the living God dwelling permanently in their heart, in their soul. How do you know if that's you? What is a living stone? What are the marks of a living stone? Well, this is very similar. Matter of fact, tons of overlap. Just metaphorical for what it means to be regenerated to what we've been saying all along. Those who have come to Christ can be confident that He has made them living stones. The question is, whenever we think about all of these things, you distill it down to what is a person doing with Christ? Someone says, you know, when I come, I love the singing and I can even get I can even get choked up and teared up. And, you know, that's fine. But if you love the singing, but you have no room in your heart for Christ, you are not a living stone and you are not offering up genuine worship to the Lord. You're just pleased with the outward blessing of singing. Jesus says to the Pharisees, search the scripture in them. You think you have life, but they are they which testify of me and you will not come to me that you might have life. Living stone. John says in John 20, 31, it's the point of the whole book that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And in that believing, you might have life eternal. Some manifestations here. So what is it that you're believing about him? Well, you're believing what he has testified about himself, what he's testified about the Lord, about God. We're trusting in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. We're trusting that 
His redemption has secured our forgiveness because we've been washed in His blood so that whenever I come to God in worship, I realize outside of the blood of Christ, I can do nothing that would be pleasing to Him. The, the, the priest used to go through all these ceremonial cleansings and we talked about this earlier in the water pots at the wedding feast. You had to wash this in this certain way and you had to cleanse the priesthood, had to cleanse themselves in this certain way and, and all these ceremonial washings. Well, for the believer, we've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and we have been cleansed forever to come to God through Christ to offer acceptable worship. And so as we come to God, we are not trusting in our own righteousness. By the way, that's like saying you're trusting in some, some ceremonial cleansing that you do. right? I'm not clean enough to come to the Lord unless I do this, that, or the other. Okay, the blood of Christ does away with all that. The blood of Christ cleanses you so that you are positionally in a state to bring acceptable offerings to the Lord. Um, we, we come to Him in faith, Romans 6, as we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. That is, not only are we cleansed from a positional standpoint, we realize that in Christ His blood has cleansed us, but as living stones, we're trying to live that reality out. We are no longer presenting ourselves as slaves to sin, but we want to be servants of righteousness. And again, brothers and sisters, that is worship. It's, it's so often we can be presented and understood in a way that worship is something that happens one or two hours out of the week. If worship is something that only happens one or two hours out of the week, I'm going to tell you worship isn't happening at all. If you're not coming to the service as a worshiper through the week, one who is seeking to glorify Christ, then when you get here, you do not get to put your church hat on and pretend like you're loving the Lord with all your heart. God, God's not fooled by that. You don't get to go through the form of praying, singing, and listening to preaching and have confidence that just on the basis of your warm body being in the pew, God is pleased. Okay, That's not real. That's the same thing that the Samaritan woman was asking about. That's the same thing the Pharisees were trusting in. But brothers and sisters, we worship. Albeit in different ways, we come together corporately and we worship in ways that we don't individually as far as just the what Christ has called us to. But nevertheless, we seek to exalt Christ and to glorify God through Christ Sunday through Saturday. Those who come to Him and worship Him in spirit and in truth, when we get here, it's really the overflow of what we've been doing through the week. So you see, it makes, it makes no sense for the only intake that you ever have of Scripture being Sunday and Wednesday. Okay? But you're not set up to come and offer anything to the Lord. If you're coming as someone who offers, rather than someone who's come simply to be a recipient or a consumer, okay, we said this already, worship is something that you give to God. 
So that whenever we come together and we gather as the church, you do not come primarily to receive. You come to give. And in that giving, God is gracious to allow you to receive. He gives. But this worship service is not about you. It's about Him. And it's about what you're bringing Him through Christ. So, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, right? with all your soul, and with all your strength. So we can say more about that, but, but you're a living stone, Peter says. 1 Peter 2.5 And before we ever get to anything else, that has to be in place in order for worship in spirit and in truth to take place over and against this dead formalism of I do all this outward stuff and hope that God's happy with it. Secondly, back in 1 Peter, Chapter 2, verse 5. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house. You're built up a spiritual house. Now, grammatically there, really it's as living stones, you are being built up a spiritual house. There is a building that's happening. Now, you know where I'm going with this, I think. Look in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias or Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter says you're coming as living stones, being built up as a spiritual house. Now I go here, particularly in verse 18, to say that Christ is in the process right now of building His church. okay, And what He does as He builds His church is He takes spiritual stones and He brings them together. What is this rock that Christ is going to build His church on? Well, different people have said different things about it. Um, I think the rock that He's referring to here, I think the church is built on One profession of faith at a time. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you. Flesh and blood has not revealed it. Well, who did? God did. Through the spirit. 
And it's through this way that Christ is going to build his church. He's going to take men and women who are dead in their sins and he's going to make them alive to Christ so that they come to him in faith and he will build his church with this kind of material. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners. Here he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, talking about people who could not be any more opposites. And he says, Now, therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together, or again, you're also being built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Okay, what's he saying here? Well, he's saying first, if you again take the chapter as a whole, he's saying first you were dead, now you've been given life. Now you, Jew and Gentile, come to God through one body so that you're no longer strangers, but you're actually fellow citizens. You belong to the same kingdom. You belong to the same country. You are under the same rule. And you are being built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. That is, He is bringing you together, building His church up so that God might inhabit your gathering. God might inhabit where you're assembled so that there is a special type of God's presence that we experience as we come and we gather together as the church to corporately bring praises to Him. But again, if the individual is not there, the corporate certainly will not be. And sometimes this can be the problem of people who cease from, they get so fixated on what it means to be a church that they forget all about Jesus Christ. And the object of their worship becomes the church. And the church ends up dying out. Because they gather together not to worship Christ, they gather together to worship the church. And they're forgetting that they are the church. And they're the ones supposed to be doing the worship. And so brothers and sisters, we should hold the church in high esteem. But the fact that we gather together doesn't mean anything's happening unless we come together as living stones who are built together by Christ as a holy habitation of God through the Spirit so that what's actually happening here is not sentimental, it's real. There's spiritual activity going on. You're not pretending to praise, you are praising. You aren't pretending to be humbled, you are humbled. You aren't pretending to be thankful, you are thankful. That only happens as you are built up by Christ through the Spirit. As you stand in the presence of God and as God moves among His people. So you're a spiritual house. 
spiritual hells. Now, we said this already, but as it relates to worship, a spiritual house is a place for spiritual activity. So obviously, some of the, you know, we are body-soul combos, so, you know, the spiritual activity has to take place in a physical manifestation. But think about this as we come together. Uh, just a couple of couple of uh, realities here from Scripture. What kind of spiritual activity should be taking place? Well, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, Jesus says that His house was supposed to be a house of prayer. Okay? We come together and we pray. That's one of the reasons why we have our prayer service at the beginning at 10 o'clock. Because this is something that's acceptable to God. This is something that's pleasing to God. This is something that God wants to happen in the habitation or in the, in the spiritual house that He inhabits. He wants us to come to Him. He wants us to pray. He wants us to ask. He wants us to praise. He wants us to give thanks. He wants us to exalt His name and to glorify Him. And one of the ways that we do that as far as, again, spiritual activity is through prayer. He wants us to make much of the fact that we've been given a high priest, a mediator that we go to who is our help. Gives us grace and help and mercy in our time of need. I don't want to wear this out, but I do want to emphasize the point. If you go all week long without ever personally praying, and then you try to enter into the prayer service on Sunday, it's not going to work. Okay? Now what I mean by that is not you're not going to be able to pray. But what I mean is that it is not going to be what God has in mind when He thinks about a corporate prayer service. Okay. Our prayer service here should be the overflow of what you've been doing throughout the week. Did you know that as we come together in this building, nothing special about this building at all. The church is not the walls, the church is the people. Okay. And if the only time you ever really uh, get serious about praying is when you're called on to pray in public, now, I don't know anything. I don't know that. And, and maybe nobody else is going to know that. The only person who might know that is the Lord. But you know what he's going to know? He's going to know it's fake. That's what he's going to know. It's a show. It's only because people are watching. And you're too embarrassed to say no. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. Which means hopefully those prayers have been going up throughout the week. And as you come here corporately, it's an overflow of that. Secondly, look at Ephesians chapter 5. We come together and we think about the kind of worship that we're thinking about in spirit and in truth. Spiritual activity that should be happening as we come together. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a house of praise. We said it's a house of prayer. It's also a house of praise. And what are the expressions of the praise that at least that we see here in this text? Well, number one, we're called to uh, verse 19, speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
singing and making melody in your heart, that doesn't mean you speak to yourself. That means you speak to one another. Okay, the yourselves there is talking about you in the body. That's why we come together and we sing out loud together. Singing, making melody in your heart. So we're speaking to one another in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Again, the melody that we're making is, there's nothing wrong, it's actually a blessing whenever we can sing well. But the more important aspect is that you're making melody in your heart to the Lord. This is not dead formalism. This is not a Sunday morning performance. This is not primarily about what we sound like to one another. This is about us coming together and praising the Lord in a God-prescribed manner. In the last couple of Psalms, Psalm 95, Psalm 96, we've talked about the fact that singing is, is one of those avenues, one of those um, aspects of worship that God desires, that God wants. And then last from the text is we're giving thanks to God through Christ. It's a house of praise. Third, out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, you can turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 3, just as far as what are these spiritual activities that are supposed to happen. First uh, Timothy 3.14 These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So we said it's a house of prayer, it's a house of praise, and it's the pillar and ground of the truth. That means the church is to continually function as a body who prioritizes and upholds truth. Okay, Truth is, is, uh, is our concern. So we just read this in Ephesians chapter 5, 19. But, so we sing truth. Okay, we talked about this, I think, out of Psalm 96. But the song service is not for sentimental uh, thoughts. It's not for um, it's not for anything that doesn't exalt and glorify Jesus Christ. We mentioned a few Wednesday nights ago, we sing about who God is, about what God has done, about what he is doing and about what he one day will do. But brothers and sisters, the object of our songs should not be us. And it shouldn't be anything that takes the focus off of any of those four aspects that I just mentioned. We sing truth. It matters what you say about God. And it matters what we offer up to Him and, and call worship. Okay? If we're not making much of Him, then by definition, that's not worship. So what we sing matters. We sing truth. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul charges Timothy to preach the Word. Okay? We sing truth. We preach truth. It matters what we do here. It matters what I say. It matters what you believe. And there's no way that we're going to be upholding truth if we aren't preaching truth and embracing truth. Third, 
out of Ephesians chapter 4, 14 through 16, rather than being tossed about with every wind of doctrine, we speak truth in love to one another. You see, speaking truth is not just an activity reserved for sermons. That's something that the body ought to be doing within itself on a regular basis. And the picture there is beautiful. We speak truth and love to one another so that we might grow up into Christ who is our head. And then 3 John chapter 4, not only do we sing truth, not only do we preach truth, not only do we speak truth, 3 John chapter, uh, I say chapter 4, 3 John verse 4, we walk in truth. John says there's no greater joy in this than this that my children walk in truth. You see, the, the, the fact that the church is called to be the pillar and the ground of the truth means that we prioritize truth in every aspect. We uphold it in every aspect. Why? Because we've come to worship Him in spirit and in truth. The truth is not just some sort of a museum relic that we say we found this and we keep it in this glass case. The truth is something that we've been that we've been brought into relationship with, you know, first and foremost, the truth is not a thing. It's a, the truth is a person. Jesus Christ. And you've been brought in relationship with Him, and then He continues to reveal truth to you by the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, so that the truth just facilitates and grows this relationship. And we're back to what we started talking about when we were talking about sanctification. You see, the idea of a church that's only interested in upholding truth in an abstract way, but has no real interest in spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, that's a facade. The pillar and the ground of the truth means that the truth is our priority with our words, with our songs, with our sermons, with our lives. So you're a living stone being built up into a spiritual house. And then back in 1 Peter chapter 2, He says, you're a holy priesthood. Okay, So ye also as lively or living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. This holy priesthood. Now, what are we talking about here? Well, under the Mosaic Law, just an average individual. Could never bring their sacrifices directly to God, even directly to the high priest, for that matter. Okay, that's the sacrifices there were worship. Okay, they were meant to be expressions of worship, but it always had to go through a priest. And only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies where God's presence actually dwelled. And so the, the, the system there was set up to where the individual, the average individual, um, never drew near to God in a real way. 
It was the priest who drew near to God on behalf of the individual. Now, when Peter says, you are a holy priesthood, he's talking about this reality that, maybe you've heard it, uh, coined the priesthood of the believer. Sometimes people can take that and make it into things that it's not, but the priesthood of the believer is the doctrinal reality that if you've been redeemed by Christ and given life by the Holy Spirit, you have direct access to God through Christ. You do not need someone outside of Christ to intercede for you. You have a mediator. You need no human agency in order to offer your sacrifices or your worship to the Lord. If you have Christ, Ephesians 1.3, you've been given access to all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Christ is your high priest. Your body is the temple of God. As we come together as the church of God, um, we are all here on equal footing worshiping the Lord. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. If you're a born-again believer, I say that's kind of redundant. If you're born again, if you're a believer this morning, you are a priest. That's why I'm not called the priest of Ripley Primitive Baptist Church. I'm a pastor, not a priest. And there's theological differences there. A priest worships God or does spiritual service um, in the place of the people. Okay, So this is why the Catholic Church has it all wrong. Okay, the, the, you, you go and you confess to the priest so that the priest can intercede for you because you can't go to God to do all that. Now, that's not what, that's not my job. As a pastor, I don't serve God in your place. I serve you. What does that mean? Well, it simply means this. You don't need a priest. You are a priest. And you have a high priest. And that's who you go to. You don't need me to take your prayers to Christ. You have direct access to Him yourself. Aren't you thankful for that? This is part of what it means for you to be a royal priesthood. Now, in some ways, you don't have a heart for the Lord. It would be easier if someone else would just do it on your behalf. But again, as your pastor, you receive no direct spiritual benefit through me. And what I mean by that is, God doesn't look at what I do and credit that to your account. If you receive any benefit from me, it's just because I'm seeking to serve you. But whatever you receive from God comes directly through Christ to you. I'm not your middleman. Aren't you glad? Now, we live in a day where we don't really understand the freedom that accompanies that. We don't understand the blessing that accompanies that. But you don't need my prayers to take you to Christ, or you don't need me to take your prayers to Christ. Now, we do pray for one another, but that's because we love each other. That's because we care about each other. That's because we are worshiping and loving from the heart. In the same way, you're not solely dependent on me for understanding spiritual or scriptural truth. You have the Bible. You have the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't use preaching as a blessing. What it does mean is 
I'm not the only person in this assembly who has a Bible who just feeds you blindly while the only thing you can do is either is accept what I say because you don't have confidence you can go to the Word by yourself and learn. Sometimes people say, you know... Um, and, you know, God does, does bless and, and, and God gives different gifts as far as teaching and so forth and so on. But if you have the Spirit of God in you and I have the Spirit of God in me, I have no more ability than you do to understand what the Word of God says. Do you know that? Sometimes people get that all mixed up. They think pastors have superpowers. You know what our superpowers are? Studying. That's the superpower. Now, what I mean by that is not to discount the fact that the Holy Spirit gives insight and that God blesses and so forth and so on. But typically the reason that you receive insights from a pastor or from your pastor is because your pastor has studied the word, not because he stood up and has access to anything that you don't have. That's why you're encouraged to have a Bible. How do you know if I'm telling you the truth or not? That's why you're encouraged to be in the word and to read and to know that for yourself. Why? Because you are a holy priesthood. He's going to go down in a couple of more verses and say, you're a royal priesthood. That means that you take your offerings directly from you to Christ and from Christ to God. Okay, this is serious business. This is, this is big business. And so as a holy priesthood, we offer up these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ. We do this individually throughout the week and then in a very special way, we do it corporately. But I'm going to, I'm going to continue to, to say what I've said. If you're not doing it individually, then the corporate doesn't mean much. Okay? The corporate is an overflow of what you've been doing from an individual level. And so what does this mean? What kind of offerings would God be interested in well, Psalm 51.17 says the sacrifice of a contrite heart or a contrite spirit is acceptable to the Lord. He'll accept that. These spiritual sacrifices, what is the offering of repentance? Well, it's just an offering of, 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 of humility to the Lord. That you're right, that I'm wrong that I, I desire to grow and to love and to be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. The offering of obedience. 1 Samuel 15.22 tells us that obedience is better than the sacrifice of bullocks and, and the whole animal sacrifice. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus says, if you're going to build your house on the rock, you're going to hear and do the Word. This holy priesthood. Again, you're not coming to God through anyone except Christ. No one's standing in your place. As far as going to your high priest goes. The offering of praise and thanksgiving. This is acceptable to the Lord. This is a sacrifice, at least it's what He calls it. And so you're a, you're a living stone being built up into a spiritual house. And you're called a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, which means that you are to be busy with spiritual activity, offering up the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and repentance and, 
and self-denial and coming to God through Christ. And what's the end of all of that? What's the end goal? Well, the end goal is articulated in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21. The end goal is that God might receive glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. He says to the woman in Samaria, the hour has come and now is where you don't worship in this mountain or that mountain. But those who would worship God would worship God in spirit and in truth because God is a spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so we are brought from death to life. We're given the Spirit of God. We're made alive in Christ. We're joined to His body. And then to worship Him in spirit and in truth is both an individual and a corporate activity as we seek to glorify Him in our lives, as we seek to grow up into our head through the body that He's placed us in. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we pray that you would, you would bless us um, to come to you in this way. Father, we're thankful for the life-giving spirit that you've given us. Father, we're thankful that you have brought us from death to life, that you've made us willing in the day of your power, that you've given us a, a love for you and a desire to please you and to serve you and Lord, that You've stirred our hearts to give thanks and and to praise. And Father, we confess that we're in need of growth in every one of these areas. Uh, We confess, as was already confessed this morning, that we wrestle daily with the flesh. Father, we confess that um, although the Spirit is willing, that the flesh is weak. And so we pray that You would help us Help us to desire above all things to please You, to walk with You, to love You. Bless us to worship You in spirit and in truth. And then to know what a privilege it is to be able to do that. Lord, we thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You for Your Son. We thank You for the church that You're building. And we pray that we would be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.